Welcome to the Development Policy Center podcast. In this podcast, Paul Ronalds, CEO of Save the Children Australia, delivers a public seminar on the challenges and dilemmas that Save the Children faced in working with refugees and asylum seekers on the island of Nauru. Um, my name is Stephen House, and I direct the Development Policy Centre. We're hosting uh, the event here today. Welcome. Uh, and let's begin, as we always do, by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians, the traditional owners of the land, of the land on which we're meeting, and by paying our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, so the the subject for today is the Nauru dilemma, and our speaker is Paul Ronalds. Uh, Paul is the uh, CEO of Save the Children, and uh, Save the Children, as I'm sure you all know, is a very one of Australia's largest or one of the world's largest development NGOs. And uh, controversially, uh, I suppose, they took on the contract to uh, look after children on the Nauru Island, and they held that contract from 2013, August 2013 to October 2015. Uh, and uh, Paul will be uh, reflecting in his talk today on um, how that went and uh, the dilemmas involved and how they managed those dilemmas. And I, I only want to, uh, at the outset, just thank Paul for agreeing to give this talk. I mean, I think it's uh, unusual, you know, to have someone come and, uh, you know, not try and sell us something, but uh, reflect on a difficult experience and, um, uh, you know, share learnings from that. I think that's uh, terrific in and of itself. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Paul, of course, he is the CEO of Save the Children. Uh, but uh, before that, uh, also worked as a deputy CEO for the World Vision and was first assistant secretary in uh, prime minister and cabinet. And he's also written a really good book, which is called The Change Imperative, Creating a Next Generation NGO on the Future of International NGOs. Uh, so he's a thinker as well as a doer, and we're, we're lucky to have him today. So please welcome uh, Paul Ronalds. Uh, I'll just say uh, I'm sure Paul will take questions uh, as we go, if there are questions of clarification, but uh, he'll also leave time at the end for uh, Q&A. We've, we've got an hour uh, in total. Thank you. Thanks very much, Stephen. Uh, it is um, terrific uh, to be here today. Uh, I always like coming back to uh, uh, the Australian National University, and as I was um, saying to Stephen, um, it is a really wonderful opportunity for me to reflect uh, on the last uh, couple of years and our engagement around Nauru. Um, you know, daily uh, decisions get made. Um, you make uh, operational calls as you go along, uh, and to um, uh, essentially have the, the opportunity to reflect and to uh, engage with uh, uh, a sophisticated audience like this on it uh, is terrific. It's wonderful to see so many of you here, a uh, range of uh, people that I recognise uh, very well that I've engaged with, including my uh, former boss from Prime Minister and Cabinet, Paul Grimes. Wonderful to see, see you. Um, and I'd also just like to uh, begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land uh, on which we meet and paying my respects um, to their elders past and present. As Stephen's indicated, uh, Save the Children is one of uh, the world's uh, largest and one of the world's oldest uh, international NGOs. Uh, we were formed by a feisty woman by the name of Eglantine Jeb uh, nearly 100 years ago uh, in England. Uh, although she couldn't vote at the time, she was outraged um, by the 
continuing Allied blockade of World War um, of Eastern Europe following World War One, uh, and was determined uh, to do something practical about it. And despite actually quite entrenched uh, opposition at the time, uh, she was, for example, accused of aiding and abetting the enemy. Uh, and she famously said, I don't have uh, any, any enemies under seven years of age. Uh, but she uh, attracted a lot of criticism uh, at that time. Uh, but despite that, went on, uh, organised uh, very significant levels of, uh, of life-saving food, uh, and then penned uh, the principles that later became the foundations and the Convention of the Rights of the Child. Um, and I mention these uh, issues because they actually go to the heart of who Save the Children is. Um, we're an organisation that believes in, in practical um, uh, aid giving, um, but we're also an organisation that's interested in systemic change. Uh, and those two things are something that are in constant tension often uh, in our work. Uh, and we've seen that through our 100 year uh, anniversary, uh, 100 years of, of operations. Uh, we now operate in more than 124 countries around the world. We have about uh, 26 or so thousand staff, a global operating budget of about $2.7, $2.8 billion. Uh, in Australian dollars, so we're a sizeable um, organisation. Uh, but we uh, have a particular emphasis on working with people fleeing um, uh, situations of conflict and humanitarian disasters. Uh, so thousands of Save the Children staff uh, work in places like Zatri Refugee Camp, about 10 kilometres uh, from the Syrian border in Jordan, uh, where I visited about uh, 12 months ago. Uh, we work in the Demez uh, refugee camp in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And of course, if any of you are following the news, you might have seen that about an hour ago, the Mosul offensive uh, began. Um, that, uh, depending on how it goes, could unleash about another million displaced people um, out of Mosul into a country that's already got about three and a half million uh, displaced people. Um, we've got staff, we've got pre-positioned uh, warehouses with goods um, on standby. We've uh, began uh, preparing for shelter, but uh, at the moment we've got the funds to support about 60,000 people. Uh, and if it uh, uh, is truly uh, the humanitarian crisis uh, that we expect, uh, us and a range of other humanitarian agencies are likely to be quite overwhelmed. So the Middle East is obviously a, a key focus. Uh, but in East Africa, um, Save the Children's been working with displaced people across Kenya, uh, Ethiopia and Somalia. We're working with, ref with refugees in Greece and Sicily. Um, we have a rescue boat in the Mediterranean that um, uh, I regularly get uh, emails overnight, rescued another three, four hundred people um, from uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And closer to home, we work in places like Rakhine um, uh, State in Myanmar, in the border camps in Thailand and, of course, in Indonesia. In Australia, we help to integrate uh, humanitarian entrance uh, into local communities. We actually have a very significant footprint here in Australia. Most, of us, most people see us as an international agency, but about a third of our programming uh, is, in fact, in Australia. And under a subcontract with the Red Cross, uh, we provide services to unaccompanied minors in mainland detention, and we continue to actually hold that contract. And, of course, as Stephen has indicated, uh, we operated on Nauru between, October, uh, between August 2013 and October 2015, where we were contracted by the Australian government to provide welfare, education and recreational services to asylum seekers. Um, once they'd gone through the asylum seeker process and had been, um, uh, their, their applications had been processed and they'd been found to be refugees, uh, we also were the organisation that was initially operating in the Nauruan community. 
Um, and uh, there we pioneered a range of employment, education and other support services um, uh, for a considerable period of time. Um, and the reason that I wanted to outline all of that is because actually Save the Children is one of the few organisations in the world that actually works across uh, what I would call source uh, countries uh, for asylum seekers and refugees through transit countries and into destination countries um, like uh, Australia and of course a range of, of other um, uh, countries around the world. And that squarely puts us in um, the midst of one of probably the most uh, politically charged and ethically fraught uh, areas of international humanitarian practice, uh, in my view. As uh, I'm sure people in this room know, as the number of refugees have grown, um, so too has um, the anti-immigrant um, sentiment. In Australia, we have Pauline Hanson in the US, they have Donald Trump and his wall to keep out uh, Mexicans across Europe. We've seen the rise of nationalist anti-immigrant um, parties uh, across most European countries, in fact. And we've seen a lot of populist uh, politicians promising simple solutions to one of the world's most complex set of problems. On top of all of that, um, the war on terror and uh, increasing concerns around Islamic fundamentalism has added yet another layer of uh, complexity. So today and this morning, uh, now this afternoon, um, I want to explore um, this uh, ethically fraught environment, the dilemmas um, that face organisations like Save the Children engaged in refugee issues. I want to begin uh, by highlighting the ethical challenges uh, at the heart of all complex humanitarian work uh, before um, using our, our experience on Nauru as effectively a case study of how we sought to navigate um, those complexities. Now, ultimately, um, the operational contexts in which organisations like Save the Children work are far too complex, too varied um, to develop hard and fast rules for engagement. However, our experience on Nauru clearly demonstrates, uh, I think, a number of things, uh, but certainly a clearly, uh, the importance of a clearly articulated decision-making framework based on our realistic view about what can be achieved and underpinned by a pragmatic but ultimately principled ethical decision-making framework. And without such a framework, uh, the daunting humanitarian conundrum uh, we face, not just in places like Nauru, but around the world, would overwhelm, I think, even the most well-intentioned humanitarian. So let me um, uh, get into the meat uh, of uh, what I want to say this morning um, by referring to one of my favourite um, humanitarian thinkers, uh, Dr Hugo Slim. Now, his work has a particular focus on the ethics of war, on the protection of civilians and the morality and practice of humanitarian action. He seeks to bring practical ethical thinking to bear on the difficult moral and operational challenges of humanitarian action. And I certainly think for uh, an issue like uh, refugee policy, um, he is a terrific place uh, to start. And if you haven't read any of uh, Hugo Slim's work, I would uh, highly recommend it. And you might like to start uh, with um, two speeches that he actually gave to um, uh, ACFID, uh, the Australian Council for International Development here in Canberra in 2005. Um, the speeches were called, the first one was called uh, On Idealism and the second one was called uh, On Realism. And if you actually Google Hugo Slim, he's got a website and you can actually download these speeches. Um, and the titles, in my view, of these two speeches highlight the constant tension that I believe is absolutely inherent 
in humanitarian work. On the one hand, many of us uh, believe in certain fundamental rights that should be enjoyed by all people at all times. And such thinking, of course, is at the heart of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. On the other hand, uh, we're also deeply aware of the messiness of human relations, of competing agendas, of different perspectives and values, and of course, of the need for deep pragmatism. And this tension mirrors the broader debate between what I would, uh, what many describe as consequentialist ethical thinking and categorical ethical thinking. Briefly, uh, consequentialists like Jeremy Bentham, who's obviously famous for his work on utilitarianism, believe that decisions should be made on the basis of the expected outcomes or consequences, and the best outcomes are those that result in the best overall consequences. Or, you know, as he famously put, the greatest uh, happiness for the greatest number. Um, categori uh, categorical or duty-based e ethical thinking, often associated with the, the German philosopher Immanuel uh, Kant, uh, however, argues that some kinds of action are inherently right or wrong, irrespective of the consequences. And Slim suggests, this is Hugo Slim, suggests that humanitarians um, should not seek to avoid the tension between those two ethical frameworks, but actually embrace it. In On Realism, Hugo Slim says, a passion for ideals alone will never make a good humanitarian worker. She or he also needs a gritty realism to guide them as they try to bring humanitarian influence and resources to bear in very worldly situations which are usually not ideal at all. This tension between idealism and realism, between idealism and pragmatism, is a constant feature of humanitarian work, including, uh, I would say, in many of the sector's uh, founding documents. Some of you in the room may recall that in the 1990s, a group of the largest humanitarian agencies, uh, led by the Red Cross, but including organisations like Save the Children, uh, came together to develop uh, a new code of conduct. And although it was initially uh, an attempt to put our house in order after the concerns that came out of uh, uh, how humanitarian aid was used or misused uh, in Rwanda, uh, it came to represent uh, an explicit recommitment to humanitarian values at a time of increasing involvement in complex emergencies. Now, the first article of the code states, and I'm going to read it out because I think it's really important, the humanitarian imperative comes first. The right to receive humanitarian assistance and to offer it is a fundamental humanitarian principle which should be enjoyed by all citizens of all countries. As members of the international community, we recognise our obligation to provide humanitarian assistance wherever it is needed. And you can imagine um, from what I've already said that this, uh, if you like, emphasis on the humanitarian imper imperative was controversial right from the very beginning uh, that was released. Some people argued uh, that it represented a form of what they described as humanitarian fundamentalism. Uh, it was back in the 1990s, so it would have different connotations today. Uh, but that was completely at odds uh, with the operational complexity uh, of many humanitarian crises. Um, such critics pointed to situations like Rwanda. If they were around today, they would point very much at 
South Sudan, they would point very much uh, at our situation in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen. Uh, I can give you a fairly long list if you'd like. Um, and they argued that humanitarian assistance um, distributed in places, and this is going back to the Rwandan situation, distributed in camps in neighbouring Democratic Republic of Congo, allowed the Hutus to rearm and resume hostilities, uh, prolonging the conflict. People might re recall a lot of uh, criticism of the sector following the Rwanda situation. Uh, and they said that this um, humanitarian fundamentalism that was a key part uh, of what became uh, one of humanitarians' founding documents, the Code of Conduct, was simply impractical. Um, they would also point, uh, for example, to Colin Powell's uh, very famous statement about aid being a force multiplier, about highlighting the potential for misuse. On the other hand, those that, that wanted to defend um, the, the code, and particularly uh, the humanitarian imperative that was implicit in it, uh, argued that the messiness of the operating context was exactly the reason that such a humanitarian imperative was actually required. It was precisely in those situations where humans' wayward nature uh, could not be trusted to do the right thing. So, What's the relevance uh, of all of this moral reasoning uh, and history uh, on uh, humanitarian founding documents to the situation on Nauru? Well, at its heart, um, I think much of the political debate about Australia's deterrent-based refugee policies uh, can in some ways be viewed as a contest between categorical and consequentialist ethical arguments. Successive Australian governments have adopted a consequentialist approach and argued that it is ethical for a few thousand refugees to be left in limbo on Manus and Nauru if it acts as a deterrent to people traffickers and prevents people dying at sea. Others, of course, argue that whatever the consequences, it's inherently wrong to detain people fleeing persecution on Manus Island and Nauru without a future. Or, as Kant would say, uh, you should always treat people as ends in themselves never as means to an end. And interestingly, certainly from, from those of us that are interested in politics, and I suspect that's probably most people in this room, um, the use of these different approaches to moral reasoning is not actually aligned with simple political labels like progressive or conservative. For example, uh, some refugee advocates have used the same consequential uh, thinking uh, as was used by the former Labor government and, and by the current government uh, to argue that Save the Children should have withdrawn from Nauru once it became aware that human rights abuses uh, were ongoing. Uh, their argument against NGOs uh, such as Save the Children is that by ameliorating the humanitarian impact of the harsh conditions on Nauru, the system is less likely to collapse. Uh, or to frame it in consequentialist terms, ending offshore detention on Nauru outweighs the increased suffering experienced by those on Nauru during the period until political change is achieved. It's a very uh, vexed issue. Now, um, aside from questions of the inherent logic of their argument, um, I was certainly surprised when these arguments were being bandied around about the selectivity of the analysis. Um, the presence of doctors and other health workers in this setting seemed to be uncontroversial, uh, whereas the role of educators and welfare workers uh, was. And, and I could never um, see uh, what the, at least from an ethical perspective, the dividing line uh, was. Of course, all of this only highlights the dilemma we faced uh, when the immigration minister, uh, the then immigration minister, 
uh, Tony Burke asked us to provide welfare, recreational and educational services uh, to children on Nauru in 2013. So, ladies and gentlemen, how did we resolve uh, this dilemma? Well, uh, I'd actually only been CEO uh, for about two weeks <laughs> uh, when we were asked to provide services on Nauru. And my chairman came to me and said, well, we expect uh, management uh, at the next board meeting to put forward a, a clear recommendation to the board about whether uh, we should accept the government's invitation or not. Now, a little bit more background. For many years prior to my appointment, Save the Children had certainly maintained a strong objection um, to the Australian government's mandatory detention of asylum seekers, and in particular, of course, children. Uh, in our view, the policy of successive governments was a clear violation of international human rights law, and particularly the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And obviously, with a founder who wrote the underlying principles, we take that extremely seriously. Uh, as the Australian Human Rights Commission has concluded, the mandatory detention of children has profound negative impacts on the mental and emotional health of children, which result from prolonged detention. And of course, um, uh, the Human Rights Commission has gone on and expressed concern about the overall regime, uh, that in their view, and, and certainly a view that we share with them, uh, the decision to transfer children um, to Nauru uh, could not be in the best interests of the child and therefore a contravention of Article 3 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. We were also, of course, not naive uh, to the difficulty of providing services in such a highly uh, to such a highly vulnerable group in such a politically charged environment. We didn't wander into this not knowing the consequences. Nauru is located... How many, how many people here have been to Nauru? Yeah, right. More than, more than most audiences, three or four. Um, Nauru is located hundreds of kilometres uh, from the nearest land. It's more than about four hours flying time from Brisbane. And although for a time at least one of the richest countries in the world on a per capita basis, uh, it now um, has extremely basic social and economic infrastructure. The centre of the island, uh, where the regional processing centres are located, was once a phosphate mine and just large granite tours, if you can imagine, huge big granite tours with uh, jungle between were essentially bulldozed over to create uh, a sort of gravel area where the processing centres uh, were established um, and uh, really baked in the tropical sun. Supporting a workforce of hundreds of people in such an unforgiving location uh, was not going to be a simple affair by any means. On the other hand, our refugee work in source countries um, provided us with first-hand knowledge of the situation of many asylum seekers. We had the capacity to scale up quickly uh, in a difficult operating environment, and we believed that the government would be open to our advice on ways to ameliorate the impact of their policies uh, on Nauru. Further, given the restrictions on accessing Nauru and the regional processing centre, we believed that it was unlikely that we could access asylum seekers on Nauru in any other way. That was important. Consequently, management recommended uh, that Save the Children accept the government's invitation uh, to provide services um, on a number of conditions, um, or for a number of reasons. Um, the first, in the lead-up to the federal election, uh, the offshore processing uh, regime um, had bipartisan political support, uh, and we saw um, uh, little chance that our decision whether or not, or we saw no chance of whether or not our decision to accept that contract would influence um, that policy. Uh, we therefore believe that that meant we could not be complicit 
uh, in uh, what we saw as the Australian government's breach of international law, and we saw that as consistent with the do no harm principle, um, a, a very important humanitarian principle. We were confident that we could provide high quality services to a very vulnerable group, uh, consistent with the Red Cross's uh, code of conduct's humanitarian imperative, that humanitarian imperative that underpins um, the code of conduct. And thirdly, by participating, we believed we might be able to influence operational procedures on Nauru, uh, as I said, to ameliorate the impact of the government's policies, particularly on children. We therefore believed that ultimately after that analysis that we were acting consistent with the best interests of children um, in accordance with Article 3.1 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Now the decision of course was made um, on, or perhaps not uh, of course, but the, certainly the decision was made on condition that Save the Children clearly retained our right to publicly advocate on a policy uh, that we viewed as a direct contravention of uh, the uh, rights of the child. I personally communicated uh, that condition to the Secretary of the Department, Martin Bowles, who was Secretary at the time, uh, also to Minister Burke and subsequently to Minister Morrison's Chief of Staff uh, when later the coalition government took over. So there was no, uh, no doubt uh, that we'd been very clear in our communications. Now, of course, um, many of you would know that the right to advocate for not-for-profits uh, is enshrined in federal law pursuant to the Freedom of Advocate Act. So we obviously also had uh, federal law to support us. Overall, if you're following my arguments, you might suggest that we've followed a mix of both consequentialist and categorical moral reasoning, or to use Hugo Slim's um, terms, a little bit of idealism and a little bit of realism, all in one. So how did it play out? Throughout 2013 and into 2014, we maintained what I would describe as a constructive relationship with the department. Many recommendations to improve conditions or outcomes for asylum seekers were indeed accepted and over time implemented. Perhaps the most significant success, uh, certainly one of the most significant successes for Save the Children was in relation to education facilities. Initially, teaching was conducted uh, in large non-air conditioned tents in the regional processing centre where temperatures uh, very quickly got to about 50 uh, degrees Celsius. Uh, I visited these in my first trip to, to Nauru um, and you can imagine um, that um, after about 10am in the morning no child returned um, to, to do any education uh, in those sorts of, of conditions. But over time we worked uh, with the department and with other service providers to secure hard um, air conditioned structures in the administrative compound. Each morning a bus would pick up the children from the processing centre and transport them to school in the administrative compound. Now, obviously in a, in a particular sort of physical context, but nonetheless it was like you know, the parents would go to the front of the processing centre, they would wave their children, the children would pass through security um, and they would get onto the bus. I'm not sure what that is. That's all right. <laughs> it's not mine, so that's good. <clears throat> so it was very much like going, going to school. Uh, and in that sort of context, combined with, uh, I think, outstanding teachers, uh, some uh, excellent teachers uh, teaching the Queensland uh, school curriculum, uh, we saw school attendance rates um, significantly rise. Um, through that period, we got to uh, school attendance rates at around 90%, um, which for such a traumatised group uh, of children uh, living in those conditions, uh, we thought was outstanding. Now, towards the end of Save the Children's contract in 2015, the department decided to integrate all refugee and asylum seeker children into Nauruan schools. 
Um, we can debate the merits of that. There are some positives and negatives um, to that decision. Um, but in my view, it was executed without the proper support required to make it a success. Uh, and the result um, is that school attendance uh, on the latest um, figures that I have has gone down to around 15%. Um, during the time that we were constructively engaging with the department, we purposefully limited our public advocacy uh, using the media sparingly uh, to make our opposition to the government's overall policy known. Um, despite this, um, our relationship with the department and the minister deteriorated uh, in the second half of 2014. Now, there were a number of reasons uh, for this deterioration. Um, despite pressure not to, Save the Children made a submission and provided testimony to the Forgotten Children, the National Inquiry uh, into Children and Immigration Detention conducted by the Australian Human Rights Commission. Um, submissions to the Commission Inquiry were also made by a number of current and former Save the Children personnel. One anonymous submission was allegedly made by a number of current and former Save the Children personnel, uh, and this anonymous submission disclosed uh, confidential information belonging to the department. The Australian press also began reporting allegations of sexual abuse uh, of refugees on Nauru. Um, all while this was going on, uh, we were involved in very drawn out negotiations uh, over longer term contracts for the provision of services to both asylum seekers in the processing centre as well as uh, refugees in the Nauruan community. So we had essentially two lots of uh, services being provided simultaneously. Both contracts um, uh, were effectively on a month-to-month -month basis um, during a long period um, uh, here. These negotiations included extensive discussions over a communication protocol uh, whereby the department would coordinate any service provider responses to media requests and effectively the minister would be the sole voice on such issues. The government also sought a performance bond from Save the Children worth millions of dollars that they would retain in the event uh, of a breach of contract. Together, the communication protocol um, combined with this performance bond, uh, we saw um, as effectively constituting a gag clause and we refused um, to agree to either. There were also intense negotiations over a number of other clauses that sought to give the government the right to act unilaterally to terminate without breach, to withhold or offset payments or to extend for multiple periods the contracts. Uh, all of these, we believed, would reduce our independence um, as an organisation. According to the government, um, other service providers, including the Red Cross and Connect Settlement Services, agreed to such clauses, which made uh, our negotiations all the more difficult. Um, I should say the Red Cross um, has um, uh, indicated or, or denied um, that government statement. Uh, there was also, of course, the Australian Border Force Act, uh, introduced by the government in February 2015 and passed by the Senate with the support of the Labor opposition in May 2015. This legislation contains secrecy provisions which restrict the recording or disclosure of protected information defined broadly. A breach of the Act may be subject to criminal prosecution, including two years in jail. So you've got all of this as the context, and then... Uh, on uh, the 2nd of October, uh, this is 2014, the Department of Immigration and Border Protection issued Save the Children with a notice uh, pursuant to our contract, uh, requiring us to remove 10 Save the Children personnel from the provision uh, of services on Nauru. 
Later that evening, uh, Matt Tinkler, who's Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Save the Children, called me to say that a journalist from the Daily Telegraph had been in touch with us uh, to seek uh, comment uh, on an article that he indicated would be running on the front page of the Daily Telegraph the following day uh, about the removal of our staff uh, from Nauru. While not known to us at the time, the following day the paper would lead with a story under the headline, Truth Overboard, uh, and would carry allegations that Save the Children's staff had fabricated stories of abuse and even coached asylum seekers to self-harm. Now, the journalist uh, had a reputation, I think the phrase is being on the drip, uh, from the government and had a habit of being in, in receipt uh, of intentional leaks. In this case, it appeared that he had not only been briefed ahead of the time, uh, ahead of Save the Children, um, by the government, but he had also received a copy a leaked copy of a so-called intelligence report into Save the Children uh, prepared uh, for the government by Wilson Security. Uh, of course, we had no knowledge of this report uh, at the time. The next day, uh, with uh, the Daily Telegraph, with that on its front page, uh, the Minister for Immigration, uh, Scott Morrison, convened a press conference regarding allegations relating to the conduct and behaviour of staff employed by contracted service providers. He didn't... Um, names save the children in, in that phrase, um, but uh, relating to the conduct and behaviour of staff employed by contracted service providers. At the same press conference, though, he announced uh, that 10 save the children staff had been required to leave Nauru. He also announced an inquiry into the allegations of abuse in the regional processing centre and of the conduct of service providers. Um, the inquiry would be headed by Mr Philip Moss, known to perhaps some of you here in the ACT. For us, the implications were very clear. Until that time, we had prioritised private over public advocacy. However, we could not allow our public reputation to be denigrated in this way. We responded with a press conference of our own, strongly rebutting the implicit and explicit allegations made by the minister. Shortly afterwards, we received notice that the government had um, changed its mind, perhaps, uh, and one of our two contracts uh, relating to Nauru would immediately go out to tender. So the negotiations that had been prolonged um, were put to a halt and a new process, a tender process, uh, with a very short time frame, uh, was commenced. Uh, the second contract to provide services inside the regional processing centre would continue until the government handed over responsibilities to Broad Spectrum or Transfield, as they were, were known, uh, then in October 2015. The findings of the Moss Review that Minister Morrison announced on the 3rd of October were finally made public on the 20th of March the following year. Uh, so what's that, nearly six months later? And you might recall they were released on the day that Malcolm Fraser um, died and the government was, was heavily criticised for the timing of its release. It found no evidence uh, that Save the Children's staff on Nauru encouraged self-harm, uh, fabricated uh, abuse allegations or orchestrated protests. And it recommended, uh, in Recommendation 9, that the Department review its decision to remove Save the Children from Nauru. And this led to the Dugan Review. The Dugan Review then recommended um, that negotiations for compensation um, uh, commence uh, with Save the Children and, uh, and its staff. And certainly from Save the Children's perspective, they have now been uh, concluded and compensation was paid to Save the Children um, for um, the, the actions uh, in relation to the removal of those staff. Justice, uh, perhaps in the end, for Save the Children, but um, certainly, sadly, um, little has changed for the children and the families that we work with on Nauru. 
instances of, of actual or attempted self-harm, uh, ongoing deterioration in mental health and allegations of abuse continue to be made. And uh, those of you that perhaps have been following um, ABC uh, will see that there's a Four Corners um, program on, on tonight. Um, I don't know what it's going to say, but um, I suspect that it'll continue to focus um, on the, um, uh, the deteriorating mental health, particularly of, of children um, in the processing centre. So what did we learn from all of this? What's perhaps um, some things that um, uh, we can take to the, to the next messy humanitarian situation? There's no doubt that the overarching policy of mandatory offshore immigration detention and the inherent limitations of the context reduced our ability to fully realise Save the Children's mission to mitigate the impacts of offshore processing. And worthwhile putting that out front. But I would argue, ladies and gentlemen, that that's always the case in every complex humanitarian disaster or, or situation that we work at. It's certainly the case in Iraq. Uh, it's certainly the case in Syria, uh, even in places like Lebanon and Jordan at the moment, right through to South Sudan and, and onwards. Almost always, the power of political actors is much stronger than the interests of humanitarian agencies. Agencies are never as independent as they would like. To get things done, you have to make hard choices and form relationships that you would rather avoid. You are almost always seen as taking sides because of who you work with and where the money comes from. What Slim describes as the code of reality for humanitarian agencies. To navigate such situations, a clear decision-making framework and underlying philosophical position must be adopted at the outset to guide your work, assisting all of those involved to respond to those numerous day-to-day -day decisions that have to be made. Having my board and staff clear on what we were trying to achieve on Nauru was also critical. We had limited uh, goals, uh, if you like, in the situation. Um, so it was very upfront um, that uh, there was a high degree of pragmatism in what we were trying to achieve. The unwavering board support during the Nauru crisis certainly gave me enormous confidence uh, as CEO, and I have no doubt that this board support was founded on a common understanding of why we were on Nauru and what we were seeking to achieve. Our position was also clearly communicated to our staff, to stakeholders and to the Australian government. Understanding what we were seeking to achieve on Nauru and approaching our work in a principled way, I believe, gave us the high moral ground when we were attacked in the media. I think our mix of insider and public advocacy resulted in some important wins, although um, I obviously need to concede that we haven't been successful in having refugees and asylum seekers, including uh, 240 children that continue to be in the offshore processing centre, um, given the option to live in Australia or some um, sustainable third country option. We did uh, achieve significant improvements for the benefits of children and their families while we maintained that predominantly insider strategy. And later, our first-hand experience working in the processing centre gave us a real legitimacy and added weight to our public advocacy. This public advocacy further increased once we exited Nauru, most recently in the lead up to the Obama summit uh, that was part of one of the side meetings to the UN General Assembly in September. Our work on Nauru has certainly been good for brand awareness and perhaps uh, paradoxically for our reputation. Um, last year, uh, the Reputax, uh, reputation uh, survey uh, had saved the children's reputation rise 12 points, uh, which was faster than any other NGO in Australia. 
whilst we certainly lost some donors and we lost some donors for accepting the contract and then we lost some donors for speaking out in relation to the government's policy, um, donor support has, I would say, been overwhelmingly positive. However, the ultimate test for us is whether we believe we have acted in the best interests of children in accordance with Clause 3 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, an underlying principle um, that has uh, guided our organisation for more than 100 years. And the answer to that question, in my view, is an overwhelming yes. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much for the riveting talk. And uh, now I'd like questions and comments from the audience. My name is Siki Benham. I'm from Regnet here at, yep. at ANU. Um, I would ask, given your experience and what you've outlined, and the fact that there are still asylum seekers and children there at Nauru, what do you think is left for um, advocates, human rights advocates, of those children to do to actually affect any change of, of those government policies? Is it do you see it as just being impossible? Mm. So, really good question. Um, so I'm ultimately an optimist, and I've been involved in a large number of uh, attempts to change quite entrenched public policy uh, over my career. Um, and um, on a number of occasions where we have stuck uh, to our principles uh, and our position, and you know, we've provided pragmatic um, options, um, we have ultimately succeeded in making significant progress. Uh, so I remain optimistic um, and um, Save the Children continues to advocate very strongly um, for an alternative um, policy um, to what is currently um, being implemented. Uh, I mean, I think um, as a country we've been sold a false dichotomy um, and um, while I painted it as sort of uh, either um, uh, you know, you're in favour of uh, offshore processing and, and, and believe that uh, it stops people from dying at sea, uh, or you know you, you're you're open to a sort of open savers approach. That's not been what Save the Children has advocated for at all. Um, we think um, that the only sustainable solution is actually uh, a regional framework um, uh, where Australia uh, and um, our neighbours, new neighbours, Indonesia, Malaysia, New Zealand, um, others, uh, actually develop uh, an overall um, uh, policy. Um, to date, uh, and this uh, has been under successive governments, effectively uh, our deterrent-based policies have actually made, I think, a deal with particularly Indonesia less likely. Uh, and so rather than, than create a long-term sustainable solution, we've, we've put up our borders, essentially our Mexican wall, uh, and said, well, that will solve the solution, and, and we know it doesn't. There are millions of displaced people uh, in the region. And that is at a time, ladies and gentlemen, when there are no major conflicts in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, so imagine if we had a conflict like that that's going on in the Middle East, closer to home, what would be the influx um, of potential refugees? There is an opportunity now, while there is actually not huge numbers, to come up with a more sustainable solution. Uh, I think it exists. Um, you might have seen a report that Save the Children and UNICEF put out um, a couple of weeks ago, Marion, um, uh, called At What Cost. If you haven't, please Google it. Uh, it uh, calculates that over the last three years, about $9.6 billion has been spent on Australia's deterrent-based policies. There is no way that that represents um, good value for money. So if you put aside even your uh, um, views about the um, human cost 
um, of the current deterrent-based policy. The economic costs just don't make sense. And for, I think, um, a fraction of the cost of the $9.6 billion, uh, we could have engaged uh, with UNHCR, with Indonesia, with Malaysia, uh, moving back up the chain um, to create a much more humane and ultimately sustainable solution. And that remains an option. I think it's the only way forward. It's, uh, I, I can't uh, come up with any other option and we continue to push for it uh, at every opportunity. I have a question which goes back to the issue of contracting. I'm Doug Hind. I've just completed a study on um, contracting largely with internal church-related welfare agencies mm. and the pressures. Yep. But I also did look at the Salvation Army um, experience yep. in, in that. What did you learn, or did you learn anything from their initial encounter? Because they preceded you um, into that and then were exited. And, yes. and, and what, what is it about the character of the government in this sort of, what I'll call it's operating in a sacral rather than a bureaucratic way? Mm. It, it's framing the purpose within some broader frame which is not to be questioned and, mm. um, and it's not like sort of the internal processes of most contracting around welfare. Yeah. Um, so what, what did we learn? Uh, well, again, I, I think... Um, we learned to stick to our guns, um, uh, and, and hopefully in the way I outlined the, what I would describe as quite a principled basis for going into Nauru, and we held fast to that. And when we had contracting terms that were inconsistent with those um, uh, original bases, the temptation is always, well, because it's never black and white, it's always, well, look, just move a little bit on this, move a little bit on that. Um, and you know you'll get there, and you find that you're constantly doing this, uh, shuffling, shuffling along. Um, we very much held to our guns on that, and we said, for example, that our right to advocacy we saw as absolutely fundamental to who we are. Uh, it was as fundamental as as uh, our uh, rights-based approach under the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and we wouldn't do anything that would undermine that. And, and that came up time and time again at board meetings. Um, and so when we were contracting there. Uh, you know, there was just no way that we were going to agree to that, and we—I mean—and you can, uh, you know, see that in the in the ANAO report that's been released in, into the contracting situation in relation to Manus and Nauru. Um, you know, we held to our guns, and ultimately, the, the government conceded, and, and we signed a contract without those provisions. Um, so, I guess that's probably the key thing we learned on the Salvation Army uh, piece, and I think this is the benefits of a safer children. You know, we're used to operating in really difficult contexts um, and we have uh, occupational health and safety, we have staff checks, we have a whole range of processes that we go through to make sure that the staff that, that are being deployed to a place like Nauru uh, or to Iraq or a whole range of other places have got a whole raft of, of quite deep training. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure the Salvation Army operationally were as prepared for the difficult context as what they should have been. Can I... Leave it at that. Yeah. I've got a range of questions, so um, but I think I'll let Paul uh, okay. <laughs> take questions would be more. Sure. Can I just follow up um, yeah. that, that uh, comment by asking what you do differently in hindsight, if anything? Yeah. The, the knowledge you've got now. Yeah. <clears throat> um, what would we do differently in, in hindsight? Um, I think it's, it's, it's a really good question. Um, 
in lots of ways, we were relieved <laughs> when, when, we, when our contract uh, was withdrawn in, in October 2015. Um, although, you know, we felt this sort of overwhelming humanitarian imper imperative obligation, we could, going back to your question, only see the situation continuing to deteriorate. Uh, so staff having to continue to uh, face um, a, a situation where they were seeing more and more instances of self-harm. Uh, and certainly even for you know the well-trained staff that we had, I mean, the, the trauma that they were absorbing uh, as they were flying on and flying off was, was, was huge and they continue to have that. Um, so, um, you know, one of the things perhaps uh, we would even um, seek to, to do more training, particularly around handling those trauma situations for our staff. I mean, that's one of the, you know, it doesn't make the media, but it's one of the issues that kept me awake at night. Um, you know, at one stage we had up to about 300 staff uh, involved in the Nauru program. That was um, on three week, three, three week on, three week off, uh, fly in, fly out. Um, so about 150 staff, uh, a three week period. Um, you know, that's a huge workforce to be deploying to a situation like that. And then bringing them back every three weeks to live in a Brisbane or a, a Melbourne or a Sydney and, and then just sort of having to deal with the dislocation that that, that provided. I think, you know, even though we're, you know, that's our bread and butter. You know, I, I don't think we can underestimate the, the impact that that has on people. Well, thank you. That's a fascinating set of reflections. I'm Sharon Bessel from Bureau of Had two questions. Mm -hmm. So, for one, is you, you talked about a regional approach, and I think you're right that that's the only way forward. But I wonder if you can comment a little bit on what you see as the potential for. Um, a regional approach that's rights-based, mm. um, given some of the actors involved. Um, and the second question, um, it seems to me that when Australia ratified the Convention a couple of decades ago, mm. we've actually failed to get um, political traction mm. around the importance of children's human rights in Australia, yeah. and to some extent public traction. Yeah. So what is concerned about child protection and mm. children, the idea of children's human rights isn't prominent in, in policy discourse often. Mm. And I think that has been really problematic in thinking about a range of really difficult issues like those that you're talking about. I just wonder what your views are on that in terms of where you see Australia's position around children's human rights. Yeah, so, so two really big questions. Um, look, on the first one, um, I don't, of course, we, we will never get um, a, a resolution, I don't think, a regional solution that would be fully rights-based. In fact, um, quite controversially, um, I had an opinion piece published in The Australian um, that essentially said that I was okay with both turnbacks. Um, and you can Google that one. It's not quite what I said. <laughs> uh, I said I could live with them if I thought that ultimately um, uh, other supports were in place. Um, so, so again, there I took a very, what I would describe as a very pragmatic approach. Um, to, to get domestic political support, um, uh, I can imagine a situation where boat turnbacks were part of a regional solution, as much as I might find them in contravention again of uh, international law. Um, uh, that would be, for example, a concession that I would certainly be open to if, if I thought that there were other checks and balances um, on, on um, in Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, perhaps going back up the chain into Thailand and, and other places. Um, uh, you know, there's a question that I'm sometimes asked, well, what about the offshore processing centres? Um, you know, would you be open to them remaining open? Um, and again, of course, from a, you know, everything that I've said, you can see that we're clearly opposed um, uh, to those offshore processing centres and, and undoubtedly think that they're doing real harm. Um, and I 
I don't think Manus Island can be sustained on any basis from a national interest perspective. Um, Stephen and I were talking about this last night, I think, you know, on any basis, the Manus Island deal is undermining our overall relationship with PNG and it's too important a national interest um, issue for us to have that very, what's a relatively small part of our overall relationship with the country completely dominating that. And we've got six, seven, maybe more million people in PNG in a situation where we're seeing decreasing good governance, in my view. Um, and that's a much bigger issue <laughs> um, than Manus Island. Nauru, if it was empty, I mean, I, you know, uh, and it was there, maybe you just sort of uh, live with it. Um, if, again, you were able to deal with people properly in Manus, uh, sorry, not in Manus, in Indonesia and Malaysia and perhaps further back in Thailand, um, so that actually um, they never actually have to get to, to Nauru, even if it, it technically remained open. Um, so um, I, I'm willing to be pretty pragmatic. This is a very complex area of public policy. There are, you know, no perfect answers, and I certainly don't want to see, um, you know, the perfect being the enemy of the good. Second piece, a second question around um, uh, children's rights in Australia. Um, I think you're right. I think your analysis is correct uh, that, you know, we're not a country compared to, say, you know, when I go and visit my colleagues in Norway or Sweden or Denmark where, you know, child rights is just the language that gets used in the public discourse. Um, but I think there's a good reason. I think Australians are wary about that. Um, and again, you know, I would take a pragmatic approach. Um, uh, when you talk about the harm being done to children um, and what's in children's best interest, people listen to that and say, yeah, that sound, makes sense. If you say, uh, you know, Clause 3 uh, of the Convention on the Rights of the Child requires... People go, oh, hang on. <laughs> so I, I think uh, those of us that are in favour of children's rights need to be a little bit more sophisticated in our analysis or in our, uh, in our dialogue and be uh, providing uh, what are the essential rights that are con contained in the Convention in a way that Australians will more readily accept and, and hear. I was just wondering if anyone had filled up the space that you left in Nauru, if there's now another organisation doing the work you're doing, and what kind of, what's their relationship with the government? Uh, so, you recall we had two contracts, uh, one in the processing centre and, and one in the, the broader community. Um, the contract in the broader community is currently held by Connect Settlement Services. Uh, they're a joint venture between two settlement service organisations, uh, so they, they provide that. Um, uh, Secondly, um, inside the processing centre, uh, Transfield or Broad Spectrum took over all of our, our operations um, there. So um, they, uh, and Transfield, as you know, is a, a, essentially an infrastructure um, provider, a for-profit infrastructure provider. Uh, they are providing the, the welfare and recreational services that we were providing. The educational services that we were providing got outsourced um, to the Nauruan government effectively. So they got divvied up in that way. I have heard the connector withdrawing from the contract. Yeah. Yes. Um, so um, I, I it wasn't I, clear what's what's going to replace it. No. So, so that's what I understand. And of course, um, the new Spanish owners of uh, Broad Spectrum have also said that they're not renewing their contract. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this this all plays out. Um, I mean, you know, it's an interesting sort of public policy dilemma. I mean, in the old days, you would have put probably public servants in there. Um, to, to run things instead, that's, I mean, that would be a pretty significant change in direction um, to, to start deploying uh, public servants into a Nauru situation. But if they can't get any other 
either for-profit or not-for-profit actors. It'll be interesting to see. I'm Nina. I'm from Care, uh, Corporate Analysis, from, Care, C-A-E-R, so Corporate Analysis Enhanced Responsibility. Right. Not, um, not the Care International NGO. Not Care Australia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm currently writing a report for our Spanish partners on Peruvial. Right. Um, and I was just wondering um, if you could ask, um, answer the question whether, um, say, the children actively encourage the Australian government to have more transparent practices with regards to what happens on the offshore detention centres yep. and with regards to turnpike boats yep. and the amounts of boats that do come to Australia. So absolutely. Um, uh, in all of our uh, both private and public advocacy, we were really pushing the importance of an independent monitor. So effectively, while we were inside the processing centre, in some ways, say, the children uh, was the de facto... Um, uh, and I sort of hesitate to even call it independent because we were clearly being funded by the government to provide services. Um, so that was not, in our view, an appropriate situation and, and it, you know, I think, led to some of the tension that ultimately had us um, have our contract not renewed. So I think it's absolutely critical that there be an independent advocate uh, inside monitoring the provision of all services and we've been advocating that right from the very beginning uh, of our engagement on, on the route. Um, I think the same thing uh, with the turnbacks. Look, uh, in all of these sorts of things, um, public transparency is a good thing. Uh, and I certainly um, uh, don't buy, to the extent that it's been used, this argument about you know, national security uh, requiring the blanket uh, lack of transparency that we, we've seen. Um, I think that's been uh, convenient. And of course, it's, it's been um, breached by the government itself um, at various times when it's suited its political purposes. So I don't think it actually believes it's required for national security to the extent. I mean, clearly there are some issues um, that are uh, in the national security, uh, uh, national security matters and would need to be kept confidential. Um, but I don't think that's the extent to which it has been. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm Ibi Lushans and I'm also from, from Regnet and also yeah. the Secretary for Companion House. And so my question is about private and uh, public advocacy. Mm -hmm. And in your talk, you kind of referred to a particular point in time when you change or your organization mm -hmm. changed from one to yep. the other. And so my question is that, you know, to what extent the two can be done simultaneously? Yeah. But also my other question is that while I understand the decision which one to go is very context-specific, can you kind of give us a, a kind of a set of general criteria which you apply to kind of um, evaluate that context? Yeah, so, so can I say that's a really good question as well, and it's one we spend a lot of time really thinking about. So overall, I, I would say good advocacy uh, should be a little bit like an iceberg. Um, you know, 90% should be under the water um, and should be done privately. Um, and you only do the public advocacy above the water um, when you're not getting traction privately. I mean, my experience is it's much more effective, generally speaking, um, to work with policymakers, with governments, with others um, quietly. And, you know, the best situation is where they come out and say, we've had this great idea, we're going to implement this new policy and no one ever attributes it to, say, the children or anyone else. That's, that's the biggest success. Um, and you continue to uh, continue to have that as your main approach. Um, to the point at which it becomes less effective um, than it should. Uh, and that's where you might do a, a brief public advocacy stint um, to say, hey, you need to deal with us in a meaningful way. Um, 
and then resume that, that private advocacy. That would be in an ideal situation. You know, at the moment, um, you know, we continue both our private and public advocacy. Um, I wouldn't say that it's 90-10 at the moment. It's probably more 50-50, uh, but it varies from, from time to time. Um, uh, and that's because you know we're not seeing a lot of traction and we can really only see... Um, we, we think we need to get a sort of public sentiment breakthrough to create the environment where behind the scenes we can come up, start to craft the detail of what might be a regional solution. Terrific. Well, thank you very much for the discussion. No, that's fine. No, no, but we're, we're about to finish. But I'm going to ask one question to the immature chief go. Yeah. I've still got one question left. Who's my position? I just want to, from the point of view of the staff, yeah. it seems to me you know, that one big reason you lost, that it fell apart was because staff are leaking information. I know that for good reasons, as they saw it. I mean, what position did, say, the children take in relation? Did you counsel staff uh, on their obligations? I mean, that seems to me uh, one big part of the demand. Yeah, it was. Um, so, to, to be very plain, um, we repeatedly counselled staff about the confidentiality obligations in their employment contracts uh, and about our confidentiality obligations um, to, uh, to the department and to the government. Um, uh, we saw that as part of our overall ethical framework, that we accepted the contract. Um, you know, the reasons we refused terms because we saw them as gag clauses was because others, we were, you know, once we signed it up, we were going to abide by those. Now, I understand there's some scepticism in the government about who leaked uh, various things, and there might be some views that Save the Children um, leaked confidential information. Um, that is not the case. Save the Children as an organisation never leaked um, uh, confidential inf information, and, and we wouldn't. Um, uh, and we encouraged our staff not to. In fact, it made it much more difficult. That said, I understand why staff were doing it. Uh, the really difficult situation, coming back into an Australian context after three weeks on Nauru, seeing the, the, the public dialogue around asylum seekers, extraordinarily frustrating. Um, so that was just part of what it was to manage um, the contract in that situation. All right, please join me. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>